This is Guns and Butter. So when we have the next crisis uh, in the real and financial economy, which is coming soon with the next few years, I believe, uh, uh, the neoliberal policies, even uh, deepening them, are not going to get them out of the crisis. So both fiscal and monetary policy, which is used to uh, try to stimulate a recovery from a contraction, a recession, aren't working very well and won't work very well next time around. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Dr. Jack Rasmus. Today's show, after Trump and neoliberalism, what's next? Dr. Jack Rasmus currently teaches economics at St. Mary's College in Moraga, California, on the subjects of U.S. economic policy, U.S. political change, financial business cycles, history of economic thought, American Labor and Unions, and U.S. Economic History. He is author of Central Bankers at the End of Their Ropes, Monetary Policy in the Coming Depression, Systemic Fragility in the Global Economy, Epic Recession, Prelude to Global Depression, among many other books. His newest book is The Scourge of Neoliberalism, U.S. Economic Policy from Reagan to Trump, which is the subject of today's program. Prior to teaching and publishing, for 20 years, Dr. Rasmus was an economist and strategic market analyst for various global technology and market research companies. Before that, for more than a decade, he was a local union president, contract negotiator, strike coordinator, and organizer for various unions. Dr. Jack Rasmus, welcome again. Glad to be back. You point out that under Trump, neoliberal economics takes a more aggressive and virulent form. You call it an economic neoliberal 2.0. We spoke in our prior conversation about Trump's fiscal policy, his over-the-top tax cuts for corporations and the wealthy coming in at $4.5 trillion. In your book, the scourge of neoliberalism, you write that Trump's tax cuts of 2018 would eventually raise middle-class taxes and make permanent the tax cuts to the 1%. On Fox Business Network, President Trump said that if he is re-elected, he'd like to sign into law a middle-class tax cut. In your opinion, what is the likelihood of a middle-class tax cut in Trump's second term? Uh, Well, to answer that specifically, and then let me elaborate, um, almost nil. Uh, You're not going to see a middle-class tax cut. A lot of that is uh, election year uh, talk and puffery. Um, You know, with uh, Trump's uh, deficits over a trillion dollars and actually going to a trillion and a half for as long as I can see here in the next next seven, eight years, uh, especially if we have a a recession, which we will, um, you know, that deficit is going to make it almost impossible uh, for Trump to cut middle class taxes. In fact, uh, he just came out with uh, a statement at uh, um, Davos, you know, the World Economic Forum, where he went to talk. Uh, saying, and it slipped the tongue, that uh, he was asked, uh, what about Social Security? And uh, he says, well, we're going to take a look at uh, reducing that, Social Security and Medicare, after the election. So next year, 
is going to be a big uh, attack if he's reelected on Social Security and Medicare in order to reduce the, the, the trillion dollar plus deficit. Well, he's not going to cut taxes at the same time uh, uh, that he's uh, cutting spending because, um, you know, cutting taxes uh, will only make the deficit even worse. Unless you believe the fiction of what's called supply side economics, which is supply side ideology, uh, that says, oh, the more you cut taxes, uh, the more you're going to generate uh, more tax revenue and therefore reduce the deficit. Well, that, that's been a lie since Ronald Reagan. That's never happened. Uh, but it sells it sells good, you know, on on the election circuit. Uh, so no, I don't think you're going to see any any uh, real uh, tax cut for for the middle class. Now, to really understand the context of this, you got to understand uh, what's going on with tax cutting uh, under Trump. Uh, neoliberalism has always uh, reduced taxes for investors, corporations, and the wealthy one percent. Uh, and it, that, that's been true through all the regimes from uh, Reagan uh, to Trump. All these presidents and all their policies have aimed at cutting business corporate taxes and investor taxes. Uh, it's a real hallmark of neoliberalism. Uh, when Trump uh, ran for office in 2016, uh, he promised to cut taxes by five and a half trillion, uh, mostly for business. And uh, you know what? He fulfilled that promise. Uh, I've been estimating um, since the tax cut was passed, this is the 2018 tax cut, of $4.5 trillion. Actually, it's $5.5 trillion, according to New York Times, here, finally admitted it, $5.5 trillion in tax cuts for investors and corporations and businesses, offset by $1.5 trillion increase in taxes on the middle class. Yeah, he raised taxes $1.5 trillion. That's, of course, over, over 10 years. And most of that tax hike on the middle class will start hitting uh, with a vengeance uh, about 2024 or 2025. It's backloaded, you see. But even, even now, tax, tax is going up for the middle, middle class, the federal tax I'm talking about. Uh, so, you know, he, he offset that $5.5 trillion with a, a one and a half trillion in tax hikes on the middle class. And then he makes this argument uh, when, when the 2018 uh, tax cut was passed uh, that, oh, uh, you know, it's going to generate a higher GDP of 4% every year for the next 10 years. Well, that was just nonsense, right? Uh, We've been nowhere near 4% and it's going down. It's going to be less than 2% this year. Uh, so uh, that's that supply side ideology, the, the nonsense that if you cut taxes, you raise tax revenue because you stimulate growth. Well, you know, we're going to have a recession here sooner rather than later. And that 4% assumption that lays behind $1.5 trillion further reduction in taxes is just nonsense. So you see, it's $5.5 trillion, uh, to sum up, minus one and a half trillion increase in middle class taxes minus the phony assumption of economic growth that reduces, if you believe the ideology, another one and a half trillion dollars. So that's three trillion dollars. Uh, that's how he gets it down to, uh, you know, one and a half trillion uh, nonsense that the uh, mainstream media picks up. Now, further indication of where he's really going with tax cuts. And it's always corporations and, and wealthy investors. 
on top of the five and a half trillion for the wealthy and, and their institutions, uh, he's already additionally cut this year another four hundred and twenty-seven billion by opening loopholes uh, or not closing loopholes that were supposed to be closed here. You know, like uh, you get big tax cuts if uh, you know you own parking lots and uh, uh, you know if you're timber. Uh, uh, forestry company, uh, you know, all, all the special tax cuts here, uh, that's already passed. That's four and a half trillion. And this year he's talking about and talked about last year, uh, indexing, indexing capital gains. So in other words, if you're an investor in capital gains, when your uh, uh, revenue goes up from capital gains, you know, capital gains are mostly stocks and bonds and financial assets. When your revenue goes up from that, or your earnings go up from that, uh, your tax cuts uh, will get deeper. Uh, so indexing it and extending the 10-year 2018 permanently uh, are proposals that are already on the table and already partially been, been made. Uh, so all the indication is more and more tax cuts already coming and more next year. Uh, and it's not going to be for consumers uh, because of the deficit. It will be for, again, uh, business interests and wealthy investors. So no, to sum up, uh, uh, this is uh, election year uh, hyperbole and, and hype. Uh, you're not going to see a tax cut for consumers because that's not what neoliberalism is about. It's about tax cuts primarily for investors, uh, the wealthy 1%, uh, their corporations, their businesses. Trump uh, very recently told CNBC that he'd consider entitlement reforms, which you have mentioned. He said that the strong economy should make up for any cuts to programs like Social Security. What is your response to his claim that the economy is strong? Neoliberalism uh, has always attempted to cut programs, social programs, and, and you know, the, the big objective has always been to cut Social Security because that's uh, uh, the big piece of pie that they want to get at, you see. Uh, social Security is financed from the payroll tax, right? Uh, but Part of Social Security is not. In other words, Part D, prescription drugs that they passed under George W. Bush in 2005, uh, they didn't pass any increase in the payroll tax to cover that. Uh, that all comes out of the general budget, you know, and that, that runs about $50, 60000000000 billion a year. They also want to go after disability, uh, Social Security disability, SSI it's called. Uh, so these are the real targets, SSI and uh, Medicare. They want to uh, privatize Medicare further and cut their cost, the government cost of Medicare. Uh, this is this is the big objective. And they've always wanted this uh, ever since Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan tried it, but he couldn't push it through. So what he got was Alan Greenspan, who was the head of a commission in the 1980s uh, to propose raising payroll taxes and indexing them. And payroll tax for Social Security for wage incomes has gone up ever since. Uh, and they want to get at that big pie uh, because they've cut other discretionary social programs to the bone, education, transportation, housing, and so forth. Uh, so the only place they can really go after to get some big cuts to lower the deficit created by war spending and big tax cuts for the rich 
the only way they, they reduce the deficit and the debt is to go after Social Security. And uh, we got an indication, as I said, of that. He slips his tongue, as he typically does. He walked it back the next day, uh, that they're really going to look at going after Social Security and Medicare if he gets elected. Uh, and uh, that's what we're going to be facing because neoliberalism is cut social programs in order to help fund tax cuts for the rich and more spending. That's the mix in fiscal policy, you see. That's part of neoliberalism. You write, political change under neoliberalism is necessary in order to address the resistance to its continuation as it becomes more economically aggressive. What do and, and what will these political changes look like? Well, we're already uh, already seeing some of these political changes. Uh, to better control the political policy process, for example, you got to uh, give the rich a bigger uh, a bigger say in the economy, and uh, Citizens United does that, right? Citizens United Supreme Court case in 2010 did what? Ah, uh, well, it said uh, corporations are people, uh, and uh, free speech. Uh, you know, people have a right on a bill of rights of free speech, and free speech is spending money. Uh, so the floodgates were opened uh, for the wealthy. Uh, and their corporations, their institutions, uh, to uh, uh, really buy their politicians, and after they get elected, buy the lobbyists, you see. 35,000 lobbyists registered in Washington, D.C. alone now. Uh, so, you know, that's one way. They, they make sure that they have control over the political system and control over the policy process uh, even more than before. Uh, What's what's going on in electoral college? You control the red states, you control the electoral college, you see. Um, the U.S. Constitution, uh, here's another problem. The U.S. Constitution uh, calls for uh, the creation of more representatives, and you know, more seats in the House of Representatives. Uh, the founding fathers did not want to let these uh, units, you know, districts, congressional districts, uh, get too large. They wanted the house to be reflected according to uh, the population, you see. Uh, and we've had this big increase in the population, but we haven't increased the seats in the House of Representatives purposely. They're avoiding that since 1913. In other words, the states where the population uh, is greater uh, on the East Coast and the West Coast, the blue states, right, are underrepresented now. And the red states are overrepresented uh, in the House of Representatives itself. And, of course, because there's more red states than uh, uh, blue states, uh, you get the senators uh, being uh, a bastion of red state conservatism. Uh, so the Senate's controlled. Uh, and then you get uh, the phenomenon of the Supreme Court taking more and more an active role uh, in ensuring that the political system uh, you know, benefits uh, capitalists uh, and, and their representatives. Uh, you know, 2000 uh, Gore versus uh, uh, George W. Bush, right? The Supreme Court selects the president, right? Uh, and the Electoral College now uh, plays a big role. Popular vote, uh, uh, we've seen this several times already, does not select the president. Uh, the Electoral College does. Uh, and there are, are other initiatives going on. You can see under Trump a further drift. Uh, already the executive under Trump uh, is beginning to ignore uh, the Constitution, 
in in that it calls for the House of Representatives uh, to pass only the House to pass uh, tax bills and to identify spending. Uh, you know, policy. Well, Trump is uh, just taking money and putting it wherever he wants. Uh, well, that's a violation of the Constitution, right? So we see everywhere a, a fracturing of even the limited uh, capitalist form of democracy in the United States. It's fragmenting, it's fracturing. Uh, and we see it in the institutions now, but it's been going on in electoral process uh, for some time. All of that is necessary, you see, uh, to pass the kind of legislation uh, that neoliberalism requires, because as it ages as a policy mix, policy form, right, it has to en help enable more and more uh, the capitalist class and, uh, you know, the wealthy and the interests of the wealthy. And so it, it, uh, it adjusts, it changes uh, to provide a stronger influence of moneyed interests in order to ensure the policies keep getting passed. I'm speaking with political economist, professor and author, Dr. Jack Rasmus. Today's show, After Trump and Neoliberalism, What's Next? I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. How will advances in AI, artificial intelligence, which is predicted to cause great strides in productivity, affect the consumption economy and GDP? Well, that's a good example of uh, uh, natural uh, restructuring going on within the capitalist system. It has nothing to do with policy. Uh, it's, it's occurring, you know, at the foundation of, uh, of U.S. capitalism. Uh, AI is uh, the next big technological revolution coming. And it's one of those uh, uh, technological material forces that identify in that chapter nine that will undermine and is already beginning to undermine neoliberal policy regime. Uh, AI, what is, what is AI, first of all? for people to understand. Um, AI is simply about eliminating simple decision-making jobs. And that includes in the services, you know, uh, whether it's retail services uh, or whether it's e even hospitality services, certainly financial services, educational services, and so forth, which is now 70% of the uh, U.S. economy. Uh, AI eliminates simple decision-making. It turns it over to software machines, uh, to make the decisions. AI is really uh, massive computing power combined with massive databases of information and the ability for that computing power to instantaneously extract uh, that information from those uh, databases. Uh, and you take that and you add on top of that uh, software, uh, statistical software uh, development uh, customized with uh, programs like Python and R and so forth uh, that uh, define and enable the database information to be uh, instantaneously with computing power uh, accessed. And you get then uh, the advent of what's called machine learning. You get uh, software machines. I'm not talking about lathes or, or uh, punch presses or anything like that. You get software machines teaching themselves how to more efficiently uh, make decisions, uh, simple decisions at first, so that uh, they can lay off the people who've been making those simple decisions, you know, in the services as well as in manufacturing. Uh, 
Uh, and McKinsey Company has has uh, uh, issued a report. You know, McKinsey Consultants. This is a big uh, big corporation consulting research firm. Uh, a year or so ago, indicating that 30% of the occupations are going to be eliminated uh, or reduced dramatically in terms of hours of work. We're going to get uh, uh, elimination of a huge amount of jobs. So it's going to impact the labor markets in a dramatic way, uh, at least equivalent or greater to the impact of what's called contingent labor that occurred beginning with Reagan uh, through the present, where uh, instead of full-time permanent jobs, people are working part-time temp jobs, call, on-call, gig jobs, precarious jobs, etc. cetera. Uh, that's 50, 60 million of the 160 million of the U.S. economy, uh, precarious uh, contingent jobs, as they call them. Uh, and that was a big factor of uh, uh, development in the labor markets under uh, neoliberal uh, industrial policy, uh, you know, in the last several decades. But the bigger impact is coming is AI, and AI is going to eliminate even a lot of those contingent jobs. Whatever is simple decision making is going to be eliminated. Well, when you eliminate that many jobs or you reduce their hours, how are people going to buy stuff, right? Oh, how consumption? What's going to happen to consumption? Seventy percent of the economy. Well, some people say, oh, we're going to have to have a guaranteed annual income. Well, with the deficits we got, uh, there's no way the capitalists and their politicians are going to allow uh, a, you know, a guaranteed annual income. Uh, there's going to be a big fight uh, coming uh, over job security and wages and income for Generation Z uh, and, of course, millennials. But Generation Z is really going to take it in the ear. And that's really going to affect the economy. Uh, as I point out also in my chapter nine on the new technologies and material forces, uh, it's also going to negatively impact business investment. Uh, most businesses, particularly small, medium businesses, are choking on debt. Uh, they've loaded up on all kinds of debt, uh, junk, junk bond loans and leverage loans and bank loans of all kinds. They're up to their ears in debt, and we haven't even hit a recession yet. When we hit the recession, uh, they're not going to be able to roll over that debt or pay that debt, and they're going to go under. And a lot of these businesses aren't going to be able to afford the new investment uh, that will be needed to compete next decade uh, in the area of artificial intelligence. Some big companies, the big companies will survive it. Tech companies will do well with it. But a lot of the uh, uh, traditional uh, businesses, including services, uh, will not be able to afford the investment in AI. And also, we're not producing uh, the skills uh, for the labor force to do AI. These, this is highly skilled work in many cases. Uh, yeah, AI will create jobs. There will be investment. Uh, but the net effect is going to be really negative. It's going to uh, destroy far more jobs uh, and destroy far more companies uh, than it's going to create jobs and create companies. So uh, the next decade is going to uh, uh, really see a transformation in the product markets, in the production processes, and in the labor markets in a very negative way. Uh, this is one of the great weaknesses I see of capitalism going forward in the next couple of decades. They're not going to be able to deal with uh, the new technology's impact on the economy and, and the social structure. The other great challenge is I don't think they're going to be able or willing to deal with uh, climate change. And the third great challenge is uh, the debt. 
capitalism is uh, is uh, creeping along and able to uh, continue extend itself because of this this thing called debt, uh, and uh, it's going to come home the roost in the next recession and the next uh, great recession. Uh, that's going to happen the next decade as well, I believe. Why the U.S.-China tech war over 5G, fifth-generation wireless? What will 5G make possible? Is 5G just a much more substantive wireless broadband, or are there other applications, such as military? Well, think of 5G as integrated with AI, right? And uh, yes, uh, the big driver for 5G uh, and AI is its military consequences. Uh, the trade war with China was really a tech war covered with a tariff conflict. <laughs> uh, with the phase one agreement, uh, the tech war has been decoupled uh, from the tariff war. Uh, and uh, those who have supported uh, the, the tech war and still do uh, are the military industrial complex, the Pentagon, their key people in the congressional committees, right? And, uh, you know, the big defense companies and so forth. Uh, they really uh, wanted the trade war uh, to be used, tariffs to be used to tame China's development in next generation technology. 5G is, is at the top of that, along with AI and cybersecurity, you see. Uh, and uh, the tech war will continue and is continuing. You, you can see its reflection in the U.S. going after Huawei, uh, which is uh, the leading global 5G company. The U.S. doesn't even have 5G. You see, they're deploying using Ericsson and Nokia <laughs> equipment in Europe. Uh, and uh, uh, Huawei, uh, you know, is the other alternative. There's only th really three big players when it comes to 5G. Uh, but it has big military implications. Let me explain how. Um, next generation already here, hardly, of hypersonic missiles going three, four, five times the speed of sound, right? Uh, how do you direct and track that uh, and intercept that? You need 5G, you need broadband, and you need AI to instantaneously, when things are going that fast, to make a decision as to, uh, you know, what direction, what targeting, and so forth. Uh, th the same goes with uh, uh, next generation torpedoes. Uh, nuclear torpedoes that will be roaming the sea, you know, they just won't shoot them. They'll roam the sea and they'll be directed by 5G and AI. The two go together, you see. 5G is the, is the broadband that's necessary to uh, have a flow of data uh, very fast and very large. So you need the big, you need the big pipes for that. Uh, so, uh, you know, 5G has military consequences, uh, not, not just on hypersonic uh, missiles and torpedoes, uh, but um, for what's called next generation uh, battlefield communication coordination between machines, weapons, uh, and human beings. A very fast coordination uh, of what's going on. Uh, you know, get rid of the fog of war. Let's see what's really happening in real time, quickly. And, of course, drone technology here, targeting and uh, and uh, directing of drones, uh, supersonic drones coming, uh, are also going to require 5G. So 5G and AI and cybersecurity are uh, big military consequences, and uh, whoever dominates uh, those next-gen technologies will dominate by 2030 uh, military power uh, 
in the next decade or by the middle of, of the century. And that's why there's a war going on, a tech war between the U.S. and China uh, over these next-gen technologies. Uh, and uh, it's been covered by the tariff war, you see, but now, uh, uh, you know, the clothes are off and now we see the tech war is the tech war. I'm speaking with political economist, professor and author, Dr. Jack Rasmus. Today's show, after Trump and neoliberalism, what's next? I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. So then AI, artificial intelligence, and 5G, fifth-generation wireless, that these technologies will interface with each other. Now, are, are they being developed simultaneously by the same corporations? Uh, who's developing all of this technology? Is it just Silicon Valley, or is it the military? Uh, well, it's both. It's both. Uh, as I said, 5G, the U.S. Uh, has no real product in 5G, and that's why it's going after Huawei, you see. Uh, it doesn't have uh, something it can really use to compete with Huawei, the Chinese company. Uh, so, uh, you know, there's commercial, big commercial opportunities here as well. Don't, don't get me wrong. It's not all militarily. Uh, new industries will be created as a result of 5G and AI and so forth. Uh, but... Um, you know, these are, are really developed uh, by the private sector. Uh, and, you know, the U.S. Uh, is, is on a par, maybe ahead of, of China in terms of AI. It's behind in terms of 5G. I'm not sure where they are in cybersecurity. See, cybersecurity is intercepting and in interrupting <laughs> all of these new technologies and the ability to uh, defend against the interruption. So they really all three go together here. Um, but, uh, you know, the U.S. is doing very well in, in AI from, from the private sector, uh, you know, the, the technology firms and a lot of small ones that are uh, coming up. Because, as I said, you know, uh, what is AI? It's uh, computing power. It's database uh, instantaneous access for massive databases. But it's also developing the algorithms, the software algorithms, uh, you know, using advanced statistical analysis and customized programming using Python and R, you know, the latest generation uh, custom programming. Uh, and, you know, U.S. has a lot of those those uh, smaller companies and big companies, Google and others, that are doing a lot of that work. So it's in the, in the private sector. Uh, we don't have uh, 5G. We're having to use uh, European. Um, and uh, cybersecurity, I'm not sure where that is. That That's a big... Um, that's that's a big picture, cybersecurity, and I'm not technically uh, that aware of that tech, technology's latest developments. Uh, but it's it's the private sector. You know, the U.S. could try to just outcompete uh, China. And by the way, all the patents in this next gen area are coming either from China or the U.S. Everybody else, you know, way back there is little little Japan, little South Korea, little Germany, but they're way behind. This is a a, a two dog race between China and the U.S. Uh, the trade war erupted with China as a result of China issuing its uh, long-term view of next-gen technology development called China 2025. And it was the, the U.S. Uh, neocons in the tariff uh, uh, department in the United States, the USTR, U.S. Trade Representative Department, uh, who identified, oh, this is a threat. They identified that in uh, August 2017 and issued a report. And Trump picked up the report in March 
And uh, that's when the trade war was launched in March of 2018. So it's always been going after China's technology, as I said. Yeah, there are other issues like uh, U.S. big banks wanted to get 51% ownership in China. And uh, there's issues of intellectual property and so forth. Uh, but it, uh, it's always been a, 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 a schizophrenic uh, U.S. trade policy. You know, uh, do we do we uh, expand uh, U.S. banks in in China? Uh, do we get them to buy more farm goods? You know, those are factions in the U.S. Uh, trade uh, trade team. Uh, but then uh, there's there's the Pentagon military industrial faction that wanted uh, uh, China to roll back its uh, technology development. Uh, they they call it tech tech transfer. You know, let's limit tech transfer, uh, both of companies in China and China trying to get into companies in the United States. Uh, and phase one a deal uh, represents the decoupling of that. Uh, in my book, uh, you know, uh, chapter uh, eight on Trump, uh, in great detail, uh, 20, 30 pages, traces the evolution of the U.S. trade fight with China and other countries uh, up to the present when we get this uh, uh, phase one thing in which uh, very clearly uh, Trump has uh, uh, decoupled, agreed to decouple the tech war from the trade war. The tech war will intensify by other means than tariffs. Uh, and, uh, you know, to get something uh, from China to restore the level of, uh, of farm goods it used to purchase and to let U.S. banks get into China. Uh, and that's really what phase one is all about of the China deal. What is the new U.S. Space Force plan? Well, that's a good question. It's uh, really to implement the next-gen technologies that I talked about. Uh, I think it's really about... Uh, uh, putting hypersonic uh, weapons uh, on satellites uh, at some point, nuclear perhaps even, uh, which really brings us uh, to our, you know, 11:59 on the clock of Armageddon. Because if you got hypersonic missiles capable of going uh, several times the speed of sound, and you're launching them from only 100 uh, to 200 miles in space, uh, it, it takes uh, less than a minute for these things to actually hit their target. Um, I think uh, the Space Force uh, is really Trump's in the military, U.S. military's answer to Russia's uh, already uh, in the lead in the development of hypersonic missiles and hypersonic uh, uh, next generation torpedoes. Uh, they already have this. They're deploying this. The U.S. is a little behind on this. I think it's um, uh, an attempt to leapfrog to the next generation. Uh you know, the, uh, the, the time limit uh, in which you can accidentally provoke a, a war is, is becoming uh, less and less, and therefore things are more and more dangerous. Uh, but the Space Force is really about the U.S. Uh, uh, leapfrogging uh, Russia and its hypersonic uh, uh, missile uh, and torpedo development that they already have. In your chapter, Capitalism's Next Natural Restructuring and Crisis is really scary. Could you go over some of what the future could look like in several different areas? For instance, you mentioned the change in the very nature of money as one of the material forces that is driving a capitalist restructuring. How is the nature of money changing? Uh, for instance, what is your assessment of cryptocurrencies and their effect on fiat banking and the capitalist monetary system as a whole? 
yes, that's that's a, a really important question. Uh, digital currencies uh, are here to stay. Uh, they haven't fully developed yet uh, because uh, governments and central banks uh, don't want it to fully develop. Because if you if you have the private sector creating digital currencies, uh, as Facebook had proposed, but its currency called Libra, right? What you're doing is taking out of the hands of the government and the central bank the control of the money supply. In other words, uh, you have private sector that could control money or create money at will by simply creating uh, these these tokens and these coins. And if it becomes accepted at large, uh, then uh, the central banks lose control of their main tool uh, for influencing the economy and, uh, you know, right now um, boosting uh, financial asset markets and so forth. They lose control of the money supply. Uh, and that's why you have so much resistance going on by central banks and governments. They know uh, that if they lose control of the money supply, uh, then you're going to have even more rampant speculation in financial bubbles and instability and crises. Uh, so they've been uh, resisting that. I think uh, eventually they regulate it now. Resistance means regulating it and uh, taxing it. And that's slowed it down. Uh, and, uh, of course, when... Um, uh, Facebook attempted to, uh, you know, launch its Libra. Uh, wow, you know, central banks and uh, capitalists came down on, on it with a vengeance. You see, they're uh, they're schizophrenic about it. It's an example of a of a contradiction within capitalism. Uh, Bitcoin and uh, these cryptocurrencies are based on a software technology called blockchain, and blockchain, when employed by the banks, uh, dramatically reduces their costs of uh, of operation. So the banks like blockchain, uh, but they're not so sure about uh, the cryptocurrencies that are created based on the software of blockchain. You see, the technology is there they like because it reduces costs and increases profits. Uh, but, uh, you know, the potential consequences of a runaway uh, money supply uh, from crypto digital currencies uh, is pretty scary to them. And... Uh, they can't hold it back, you see. They've created the internet and the technologies, um, and and it's going to happen uh, eventually, maybe sooner, maybe later. Uh, but they're going to lose control of the money supply here, I believe, even even more than they have now. You see, uh, the the Federal Reserve, the central bank, has minimal influence over the money supply because for 40 years it's been pumping money into the U.S. economy that's been flowing out into the global economy, and there's tens of trillions of dollars now floating around the world, and uh, it's hard to control a business investment uh, by just raising and lowering interest rates in the U.S. when you have these global capitalist companies that can access all these money markets dollar money markets and other money markets around the world. Uh, that's why in my previous book, Central Bankers at the End of Their Ropes, I, I emphasize this, that uh, uh, they're losing control of, uh, of the money supply and therefore their main tool, Central Bank's main tool of, of interest rate manipulation. Well, what do you think about the Dow Jones average at 29,000? And why are corporations buying back their stock is this to keep the stock price elevated? Yeah, it's it's to drive up the stock price. Yeah, and then um, 
you know, when they say buy back their stock, it's not as if they're buying back from everybody, uh, all, all the buyers of their stock. No, they're buying it back mostly uh, from their senior managers, you see. It's a way of uh, boosting uh, the stock award for their senior managers. Uh, tech companies buy back, their senior managers uh, buy back about 70% of uh, the buybacks. Uh, for example, Apple computer, which is sitting on $250 billion in cash, uh, that it keeps 95% of it offshore, uh, still, still uh, is buying back its stock by raising, uh, issuing bonds, by the way, because bonds are so cheap. Uh, it, it, it issues the bonds and, and gets, uh, you know, the money and it then buys back its stock, which is really a way of funneling money to its senior managers and funneling even more because the buyback uh, drives up the stock, you see. It's part of this financialization that's going on. Uh, and uh, buybacks, by the way, over a trillion dollars a year for the last eight years, and last year $1.3 trillion, the year before that $1.2 trillion. This is a massive re redistribution of income to wealthy investors, Uh Going on within corporate America, you see, the buybacks and the dividend payouts of about, you know, 400 billion, 500 billion, 600 billion a year. You add uh, the buybacks and the dividend payouts, it's over a trillion dollars a year for the last eight years. Just think of that. You know, corporations are throwing this mountain, mountain of money uh, at their shareholders, which are a small number, uh, most of whom are their own uh, uh, senior managers. That's why you got this massive income inequality trend going on. It's not just holding down wages. You see, most of it comes from capital gains and a huge increase in, in stock prices and, and uh, uh, you know, the massive wealth that they're accumulating at the very top from these financial markets. That's why capitalism is financializing. The capitalists themselves say, well, gee, uh, we can make even more money uh, from financial uh, manipulation than we can by making things, not to say that they've abandoned making things everywhere, but this new finance capital elite that I've been talking about, 200,000 of them globally, you know, they're manipulating uh, all these financial markets and uh, they're the ones getting, uh, you know, incredibly rich. Uh, what, Oxfam came out with something like uh, just a couple hundred billionaires now have more wealth or even income, I think, uh, than uh, over half of the world population, or maybe more. You know, the the concentration of wealth at the top uh, is going on at an incredible accelerating rate, but it's being driven by this financialization and these financial markets, and the buybacks and dividend payouts are part of that whole process. Right? And, uh, you know, what is the Federal Reserve, the central bank's role, and the government role in all this? Well, they're feeding the buybacks. They're feeding it uh, by their tax policy and by their monetary policy, enabling it, and the corporations are turning around and uh, distributing trillions to their stockholders, and that's driving up the financial markets. Uh, and, you know, you look at the, the Dow and the S&P 500 and so forth, you know, they're at record levels and they keep going higher. Uh, and um, every time there's a correction it's uh, to the stock prices. It's only temporary and it comes back and it goes even higher. Well, that's because of the buybacks keep flowing in and driving it up. I'm speaking with political economist, professor and author, Dr. Jack Rasmus. Today's show, 
after Trump and neoliberalism, what's next? I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. What do you foresee for the 2020s decade? Will a fourth restructuring of U.S. capitalism be required to meet the material changes now underway? And if so, what are the odds that a fourth restructuring will differ from the neoliberal economics since the 1980s? Well, that's the big question I end up the book with. And uh, yes, I believe there will be a, a major crisis in the 2020s. Uh, it will be both financial uh, and a real economy, a recession, so forth, because the two, two cycles, the financial cycle and the real cycle, uh, are uh, inextricably uh, linked now. We saw that in 2008 and 2009. Uh, so uh, a crisis in one will, will uh, precipitate a crisis in the other, and they both feed on each other back and forth. The financial crisis uh, accelerates, propagates, accelerates the, the collapse of the real economy, and collapsing of the real economy then exacerbates the financial defaults and financial crisis. I've been talking about that relationship since my 2010 book, Epic Recession, Prelude to Global Depression. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, in my other book, Systemic Fragility in the Global Economy, I, I took that one step further. Uh, and I just talk about it a little bit here uh, in this book, but I really think uh, neoliberal policy, the contradictions are intensifying at the level of the policy itself. You know, you keep cutting taxes, and you keep increasing defense spending, you're going to exacerbate uh, uh, the deficit and debt. Uh, and if you raise interest rates, monetary policy, uh, that creates a crisis in the financial markets. Uh, so uh, there's a contradiction between monetary policy and fiscal policy that has to do with the deficits and, and the debt. Uh, you can't have both, right? And uh, if you uh, lower interest rates, you feed the financial instability long run even further, which uh, creates uh, recessions, which exacerbates your, your deficit and your debt. In other words, the contradictions are, are intensifying uh, between those two areas. Uh, they're also intensifying between monetary policy and, and trade policy. Uh, in order to finance the rising deficit, uh, the, the Federal Reserve Central Bank uh, either has to raise interest rates or sell more bonds. Uh, it tried raising interest rates, but doing that uh, causes a big instability in uh, emerging markets around the world uh, that, that we mentioned here. Um, so what it's doing is trying to sell more bonds in the form of 20-year bonds right now. Uh, and Trump has been driving, trying to drive the Fed to drive down interest rates because lower interest rates uh, lower the dollar. He wants the dollar to stay low, but higher interest rates to, to, um, to finance the deficit and debt mean a rising dollar means global instability. Uh, so these contradictions I see in late uh, neoliberalism where we are today uh, are, are intensifying. The policy solution uh, no longer uh, facilitates the expansion uh, of, of uh, capital here, it's becoming a drag on the capital. That's, that's what uh, contradiction really means here. So when we have the next crisis uh, in the real and financial economy, which is coming soon, within the next few years, I believe, uh, uh, the neoliberal policies, even uh, deepening them, are not going to get them out of the crisis. Uh, even today, uh, 
interest rates are exceptionally low. Uh, lowering them to stimulate investment is not going to work. Well, look at Europe and Japan. They have negative rates, negative, and it's not stimulating investment. So you're not going to be able to stimulate economic recovery with monetary policy. Uh, fiscal policy, fiscal policy, the same thing. Uh, you know, stimulating it with government spending uh, does not have much of what's called the multiplier effect anymore. And tax cutting uh, doesn't either. So both fiscal and monetary policy, which is used to uh, try to stimulate a recovery from a contraction, a recession, uh, aren't working very well and won't work very well next time around. Uh, so they're going to have to come up with a different set of policies. These traditional policies of neoliberalism will not work uh, in terms of trying to stimulate a recovery uh, from, from the next crisis. Uh, what are they going to do? Uh, well, I think there has to be some real structural changes in the economy, or they will double down and uh, impose something uh, you know, even more draconian, something uh, closer to a, a fascist, fascist economic policies here. Uh, you could see that. It could go that way after the next crisis in the 2020s, or it could go uh, more progressively as well. Uh, and that's a political fight and a political issue and has a lot to do with uh, what's the, the state of democracy in this country. Uh, can the people, can solutions uh, from, from uh, the grassroots really restore uh, stability, uh, or will... Uh, or will Trump policies uh, look uh, progressive compared to what might be coming in the 2020s? Well, speaking of the political uh, fight that's been going on ever since from before Trump got elected, uh, you write in your book, The Scourge of Neoliberalism, that Trump is not a lone wolf, that similar post-crisis split and internecine ruling class conflict has been appearing globally elsewhere as well. Yeah, that's, that's a reflection of, uh, of, of the crisis of 2008-9 and the lack of uh, real recovery uh, that has followed that. Uh, which has been even worse than in the United States. You know, uh, under Obama, we had the, the weakest recovery from recession in the last 50, 60 years. We had 11 recessions, but the recovery was, was really tepid and uh, really did not extend. We had about 60% of the recovery that we should have had uh, given the policies. Another example of why the policies aren't working that much anymore. Uh, so uh, a very weak recovery in the U.S., uh, but compared to the U.S., Europe has been even worse, and Japan's been even worse. Uh, Europe has had uh, a double, triple dip recession since 2008-9. Uh, Japan has had at least three recessions. Um, so in, in emerging markets, uh, commodity producing emerging markets have been in recession for some time now uh, because of falling uh, oil and commodity prices. So the rest of the world is even worse off and uh, recovered even uh, more slowly and, and less uh, effectively than the recovery in the United States. Uh, this is what I, what I identified in 2010 as what I call epic recession. An epic recession is where you have a financial cycle driving a contraction of the real cycle and vice versa, uh, in which 
the recovery is short and shallow. In other words, you have a, a, a very weak recovery that kind of slips back into a recession. You get double-dip recessions in, in Japan and in Europe. You get another weak recovery, and you get another uh, contraction, and you bounce along the bottom. Uh, that's what happened in 1907 to 14. That was an epic recession I talked about in that book. And 2008-9 is also an epic recession, where the recoveries are short and shallow, and uh, uh, relapses into uh, short and shallow recessions uh, that you recover, uh, but not very well from, uh, you bounce along the bottom. And that's what's going on in Japan. That's what's going on in Europe and other advanced uh, capitalist economies. Uh, China was was different. And China, uh, after 2008-9, uh, pulled up uh, some of the emerging markets for a while. Uh, but now, uh, you know, the growth rates are slowing uh, everywhere. Uh, in the global economy. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's, it's a weak recovery. And that's a reflection of late capitalism under neoliberal policies as well. Well, then, do you think we might be looking at a depression in the 2020s? Well, you know, a, a depression is, is usually a, uh, if you look at it quantitatively, a depression is a, a five to 10 year a contraction of the real economy and a collapse of uh, credit. Um, and, and the collapse, uh, you know, is usually a very severe 30, 40 percent. You know, recessions, uh, you know, you have a short uh, uh, contraction of a, of a year or two, and it's usually around 5 to 6 percent uh, contraction in the real economy. Uh, so a depression is, is very severe, and a depression uh, requires the collapse of the financial system. Uh, if you look at the Great Depression of the 1930s, what was that? Uh, well, we had in 1929-30 uh, an initial contraction, uh, but only in uh, uh, at first in manufacturing and then construction. The rest of the economy was not affected. But then we had a banking crash that followed the stock market crash. The banking crash occurred in 1930, and the economy ratcheted down further. We had another banking crash in 31, and it ratcheted down even further. And again in 32 and 33. So a depression is is a, a series of ever deepening financial crises that keep dragging the real economy down further and further. Uh, and that's what it was 1929 to 34, 33, 34. And it wasn't until the, the financial crashes were stopped by bailing out the banks under FDR uh, that we, we got a leveling off of the contraction. We didn't get a recovery in 33, 34. We got a leveling off, that's all. You stop the banking crash, you won't necessarily get a robust recovery, but you'll stop the further contraction. Well, that sounds like 2008-9, doesn't it, in some ways? And it wasn't until 35 that FDR really starts pumping money into Main Street with uh, the New Deal that you really got a recovery. You know, the stock market crashed after 2930, uh, 89%. I mean, that, that's just a total disappearance almost. But one of the biggest booms in the stock market occurred in 35 to 37. Yeah, when you finally got a, a recovery of the real economy because of the New Deal. See, people don't, want, especially economists, don't understand their own history. They don't understand economic history here. But, to, you know, to summarize, a depression is where you have a contraction that's driven lower and lower by a repeated further uh, contraction of the financial system. Will that happen next decade? 
who knows? It, you can't predict those things, uh, but it very well could. Uh, we could see a, a, a total collapse once again of the global financial system. Uh, but I'm, I'm not willing to predict that. Uh, except to say that uh, there will be a, another recession and there will be financial uh, uh, system implications driving it. How far it goes uh, remains to be seen, but we certainly will see it uh, before 2025. Dr. Jack Rasmus, thank you very much. Always a pleasure, Bonnie. Thank you. been speaking with Dr. Jack Rasmus. Today's show has been After Trump and Neoliberalism, What's Next? Dr. Rasmus is a political economist, professor, and author. In addition to writing and teaching economics at St. Mary's College in Moraga, California, he is a playwright. His plays include 1934, Fire on Pier 32, and Hold the Light. His most recent book, among many others, is The Scourge of Neoliberalism, U.S. Economic Policy from Reagan to Trump, which was the subject of today's program. Dr. Rasmus blogs at jackrasmus.com. That's Jack, R-A-S-M-U-S, dot com. His website is keyclosproductions.com. That's K-Y-K-L-O-S, productions.com. His Twitter handle is at Dr. Jack Rasmus. He hosts a weekly radio show, Alternative Visions, on the Progressive Radio Network on Fridays at 2 p.m. Eastern. He may be contacted at rasmus at kiklos.com. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner, Yaromako, and Tony Rango. Visit us at gunsandbutter.org to listen to past programs, comment on shows, or join our email list to receive our newsletter that includes recent shows and updates. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. Follow us on Twitter at G&B Radio. Peace.